Well, good evening. Take your Bibles, if you would, please turn to the book of Ruth. Joshua, Judges, Ruth. It's one of those books I tend to want to put further down in the Old Testament for some reason when I don't think about where I'm really looking. As I thought and prayed about a new series for Sunday night, I reached out to some of you for suggestions. And then after looking over what I preached in the past, I discovered that I've not preached through Ruth since 1992. Any of you remember that series? Yeah, I see hands all over the auditorium. Well, this is not the same messages, so in those days I only used an outline. These days I'm so old I have to use a manuscript. But I hope it's a profitable series for us. But when we begin a a new study, begin to look at a new book, the the question is always, how much background material do you give people? If this was a college course, we'd spend time talking extensively about the authorship. We'd talk about where Ruth is among the historical books, set it in chronological order of what happened in in Judea and all that, but we're going to skip over that because this is not a college class. I just want to say about the authorship that the book of Ruth is anonymous. We are not given in the Bible who the author of uh, the book of Ruth is. Jewish tradition assigns the authorship to Samuel. But the author may have lived after the death of Samuel and during the reign of David. But as we look at our Bibles that we have in our hands, we would note that Ruth has been placed between the book of Judges and the first book of Samuel, uh, maybe for good reason. Only two (coughs) books in the Bible bear the names of women. They are Ruth and Esther. Ruth was a Gentile who married a Jew. Esther was a Jew who married a Gentile. Only three women appear in the genealogy of Jesus, and she was one of them. The book of Ruth is a great story, but perhaps not as universally known as we might think. When Benjamin Franklin was abroad as a representative for our country in Europe, he would sometimes gather together a fashionable company And telling them that he had come across a most remarkable piece of Oriental literature, he would read to them the book of Ruth. When he finished, all would express their great delight and ask him how he had come upon such a gem of literature. And then he would tell them, it's in the Bible. I want us to look, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1, and now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled, that there was famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judea, went to dwell in the country of Moab, and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his son were Malone and Chilion, Ephrodites of Bethlehem, Judea. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech... Naomi's husband died, and she was left, and her two sons. And now they took wives of the women of Moab. The names of one was Orpah, and the other was Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. 
Then Malone and Chilean also died. So the women survived their two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that, they, that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-laws with her. And they went on their way to return to the land of Judea. In these <clears throat> first seven verses of Ruth, we are introduced to the family of a man named Elimelech who lived in the day of the judges. It is a sad tale of a man who chooses to walk out on the Lord and on God's plan for his life. And as a result of his decision, he and his family pay a terribly high price. The first thing I want us to note tonight is it's easy to turn away from God during a time of general wickedness. It said it came to pass... in the days when the judges rule. So the historical setting of this story is important. The Bible says that it was in those days when the judges ruled. The period of the judges was one of the most wicked uh, in all of Israel's history. Joshua and Caleb were dead. So the Israelites did not have any spiritual leadership. The people turned to idolatry and immorality. This entire period can be summarized by the last verse in Judges, Judges chapter 21 and verse 25, which says, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now that was written over 3,000 years ago, but it's also a perfect description of the American culture in which we live. There was a time when our society was founded on the bedrock of biblical truth, We didn't have to argue over what constitutes a marriage because the Bible says that a marriage is a union between a man and a woman. We didn't have to argue over ethics of abortion because the Bible taught that life was sacred from the moment of conception. We did not have to argue over whether a cross or the Ten Commandments could be displayed in public. But America changed. It changed when we no longer got our standards from the Bible. We live in an age of moral relativism where we are told there is no such thing as absolute standards. It's up to every individual to decide what is right and wrong for themselves. That is exactly the problem that is described in Judges when it says every man did what was right in his own eyes. The second thing we note is you start... You start to turn from God when you stop trusting him. It says there was a famine in the land. Now, although the land is not further described, for the Hebrew, there was only one land, the promised land, the land given to them by God. And so when a famine came, Elimelech faced the same choice that we have. Do I stay here and pray and seek God's direction and then trust him to provide for us or will I go and take things into my own hands his choice was to go back across the Jordan River back among the pagan people of Moab because he heard they had some food it seems that Elimelech devised his own solution instead of calling on God for mercy 
seeking the repentance of sin and asking for God to restore his favor. There was a famine in the land, and Elimelech decided to leave Judea to a land where he hoped the suffering of his family would be less. His motives were legitimate. His intentions, no doubt, were sincere. But in spite of his good intentions, he made a bad decision. The suffering he hoped to escape in Bethlehem, his family endured in Moab. He feared death through starvation in Bethlehem, and yet in Moab he died and both of his sons as well. But it seems that in fact, Elimelech may well have made his decision before his family had really been affected by the famine at all. Because when Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem ten years later, her statement was, we went out full and we returned empty. We should consider also that it is later revealed that Elimelech had a close relative. His name was Boaz. Boaz stayed. Boaz not only survived, he prospered. Two wrongs are involved here. First, he abandoned God's promised land. And secondly, he went to the land of God's enemies. First of all, he abandoned God's promised land. God had promised Israel that there would be plenty in the promised land as long as Israel was obedient. Well, after 350 years of disobedience, there's a famine. The children of Israel had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years traveling toward the promised land and fought, <clears throat> and fought to gradually claim the land that God promised. Now, only a generation later, Elimelech <clears throat> has left the promised land headed in the opposite direction. The journey to Moab, we are told, was downhill all the way, both physically and spiritually. In a way, Elimelech's move to Moab was the equivalent to denying his faith in Jehovah. Because by moving to Moab, he separated himself and his family from the things of God. They could not worship in the temple. They could not bring their offerings, nor could they keep the feast. They were isolated from everything that God stood for. So in making this move, Elimelech exposed his family to evils that they would have avoided had they stayed in Israel. So when Elimelech turned back and traveled to Moab, he became a sad but powerful picture of a child of God who turns away from God's promises and lives in a land of misery. It is a picture of a term that we don't hear much in our day. It's called backsliding. Elimelech is a picture of a backslidden believer. Backsliding happens when a believer stops advancing in their, work, in their walk with God. And instead they are sliding back into their old habits and behaviors. The Bible says in Proverbs 14, 14, <clears throat> the backslider in heart, his heart will be filled with his own ways. 
but a good man will be satisfied from above. Ironically, Elimelech's name means God is king, but he certainly did not live as if God was his king. Secondly, he went back to the land of God's enemies, backtracking to Moab. The text says that Elimelech went to dwell in the country of Moab. <clears throat> and the word dwell here is a Hebrew word that means to sojourn. And the significance of that is that it, is, it indicates a temporary residence. He did not in intend to stay. He did not intend for his time there to be permanent. But to arrive at the land of Moab, Elimelech's family had to go through the, the desolate Jericho Pass. They had to go through the Judean wilderness near the Dead Sea, cross the Jordan River in the land of Moab. This is a definitive departure from the promised land, a return toward the wilderness from which God had delivered Israel earlier. These are clearly steps in the wrong direction. We're told that Elimelech takes his family to a place called Moab. Moab was located just across the Jordan River and east of the Promised Land. It was inhabited by people who worshiped pagan gods. The Moabites were the descendants of a man named Moab who was the son of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his eldest daughter. In Israel's history, it is Moab with their king and his prophet Barak and uh, Balaam. They attacked and opposed Israel, seeking to destroy the people of God during Israel's wilderness, wilderness wandering. This was a people who were opposed to God and to his ways. In Psalm 60, in verse 8, God describes Moab. He says, Moab is my wash pot. Literally, Moab is my foot pan. It described something that was despised. It compared to a vessel containing water to, use, to be used by slaves to wash the feet of a conquering hero. It was the lowest job possible. Yet, <clears throat> these are people who could have been saved had they repented of their sins as Ruth did. This is what John MacArthur says about the Moabites. He says, the people of Moab worshiped a God whom they called Shemush. Worship of this idol was grotesque and at times even involved human sacrifice. Moabite worship was also filled with erotic imagery and lewd conduct. Mo the paganism of Moab typified everything that was abominable about idolatry. The Moabite culture practically epitomized everything faithful Israelites were supposed to shun. It is to this despised and wicked nation that Elimelech moves his family. So here we, we see a picture of that person who willingly turned their back on the things of God, and for that they pay an awful price. 
If this section of scripture teaches us anything, it teaches us that living in a backslidden condition carries with it devastating consequences. But repentance and restoration are always a possibility. Number three, turning from God, turning from God brings heartache and bitterness. As we look at their story, we can see this is true. They may have intended for their stay in Moab to be temporary. But in verse 2 it says, And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. They may have convinced themselves that they would only stay for a short time, but the days turned into weeks, the weeks turned into months, and before they knew it, ten ten tragedy-filled years have passed. There's an old saying about sin that you've all heard. Sin will take you further than you wanted to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. There was heartache. The sad result of their lives in Moab is reported in verses 3 and following. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons. And now they took two women of Moab, the names of which were Orpah and the name of the other Ruth, and they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malone and Chilean also died, and so the the women survived. The woman survived her two sons and her husband. So tragedy pretty quickly ensues. First, Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi a widow. We don't know how long that period of time was between the time they got there and the time that Elimelech died. But over the course of time after that, the two sons, Malone and Chilion, took wives of the women of Moab. A woman named Orpah and a woman named Ruth. Now, although marriage to the women of Moab was not directly forbidden, although you, you will see an author once in a while say that it was, but it wasn't. It was not directly forbidden. We have to say that the Israelites were forbidden to marry Canaanite women lest they be tempted to worship other gods. And common sense then would make then marriage to a, to a woman who is of Moab inappropriate for the same reason. And then the two sons died without having any children. Naomi's husband and both her sons have died, and now she is left the head of the household. She is alone in a strange land, and worse, she now has the responsibility of caring not only for herself, but for the wives of her two sons. So now there are three widows, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. To be a childless widow was one of the most vulnerable positions in the ancient world. There was no one to support them, and they had to live on the generosity of others. And in this particular case, they had to depend upon the generosity of strangers. Naomi had no family left in Moab, and the three widows became desperate for survival. First of all, heartache. Secondly, bitterness. In verse number 20 of chapter 1, Naomi describes her bitterness. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full 
and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Naomi, whose, ma- whose name means pleasant, now says that she is so full of pain that she says, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. Turning from God always brings heartache and bitterness. Fourth, no matter how far you roam, God invites you to come home. We find in verse 6, and then she arose with her two daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore, she went out from that place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. The fact that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread needs to be recognized as a definite gift of food, as an illustration of the grace of God. The author does not and explicitly talk about grace, but the absence of any hint or repentance on the part of Israel as a whole, or Naomi in particular, suggests the motivation behind the lifting of the famine and the provision of food lies entirely in grace. These last two verses help us to leave this story with a glimmer of hope. Somehow, Naomi has heard that the Lord was again blessing Israel. But in truth, the Lord had never stopped loving Israel. Even his discipline is a sign of his love. This news, however, sparked a desire in her heart to go home. Maybe she remembered what it was like to be near the things of God and among the people of God. Maybe she missed the opportunity to worship and to present her sacrifices to the Lord. It says, then she arose that she might return from the country of Moab. Naomi rose up and left Moab. She experienced a change of heart that resulted in a change of direction. This reminds me of the story of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. The story of a son who left, his, who left God's place and God's people and went out into the world to live. The result was that he found himself homeless and hungry and willing to eat that which he fed to the hogs. But suddenly, it says, in the story he came to himself. He remembered there was plenty in his father's house, and so he arose and came to his father. Well, Naomi rose up and went on her way to return to the land of Judah. She was headed back to the land of praise. She was going back to the place that should have been all along. She was going home. She discovered a great truth about the will and work of God. If you, if you find yourself separated from God, if you, with good intentions but poor Poor decisions have wandered far from God. It is always the will of God that you should return. Just as we saw in the story, the prodigal son, the father is always ready and willing with open arms to receive the wanderer home. We're told in 
chapter 1 and verse 19, when Naomi reached Bethlehem, the entire village welcomed her. When Naomi returned, though, she did not return alone. Her Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth, came with her. This Moabite daughter would later become the great-grandmother of King David. And ultimately, she was listed in the lineage of Jesus. Even when we do not see it, God, God's work in our lives, his plan and his will is always moving forward. I want to close with just three little lessons drawn from the text. First, there's a lesson about following the Lord. Sometimes, even God's children suffer. That is still a difficulty for us because many of the prosperity gospel tell us that it's not God's will for us to ever suffer. We're never supposed to be ill. We're always supposed to have plenty. We're supposed to uh, never have any want whatsoever. But sometimes even God's children suffer. There's also a lesson about directing our lives. Good intentions do not always produce good results. Sometimes we have good intentions, but we make a bad decision. And the bad decision produces bad results. But this we should learn, any direction that takes you away from God is in the wrong direction, regardless of where you think you may be going. And then there's a lesson about discerning God's will. It's important for us to always realize that it is always, always God's will for his children to come home. No matter how far they've gone, no matter how far they may be away from the place that they ought to be, God's will is always for us to come home. And we need to understand that even when we do not see God working, God's plan and God's will is continuing. Even when we do not see his hand, he certainly is still at work. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you've done for us and are doing for us. Thank you for the great reminder that you gave us, you give us about your love for us. We need to be reminded from time to time that even with good intentions, sometimes we make bad decisions. But the best time to turn around is when we first realize that we made a bad decision. And it's so comforting to know that you are always ready, willing for us to come home. No matter where we have been, no matter what we may have done, you still love us. And you still are ready and willing to welcome us with open hands and open arms. Father, thank you for this great expression of your love. Thank you that even in the Old Testament we see the story of redemption. We see the story of the Redeemer and we see your hand at work. Thank you for these people who have been so faithful to come out tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.